This week on the Fraternity Sorority Life podcast, we welcome in Dr. Anne-Marie Klotz for a conversation about making innovation a professional habit. Start with your own locus of control. Um, so when I was a hall director back at Ball State, myself and my grad, now my dear friend Todd Porter, you know, we set the stage for what we wanted that community to be like, how we wanted to create the norms of that community, what innovative things we wanted to do, while still being mindful, of course, of the overall goal of the department and the division, but start small. And some resolutions we should all make for a brighter higher education future. We need to sunset old programs that no longer serve our student body. Each year that you're in a position, you should be assuming progressively responsible duties. And so what your job duties look like in year one should be vastly different than in year three or four. Hello, and welcome to the Fraternity Story Life podcast. I'm your host, Matt Deeg, and I'm excited to share today's conversation with you. Before we get to this week's guest, it being the new year and all, I thought, like I asked Dr. Klaus to share in the coming conversation, that would, I would give you a few of my hopeful resolutions for the upcoming year in fraternity sorority life. First, you may remember last year, we were kind of pointing fingers a lot um, at campuses, at national organizations, at associations. This year, I hope, is marked by us shaking more hands. If last year was the year of arguing and blaming, let's make this the year of collaboration. We have a new entity in the NIC 2.0 beginning its work, and we have new work groups in our association to help guide our work further. It would be a shame to let all of this burgeoning momentum go to waste because of our own hubris as individuals or organizations. So let's resolve to see the good in an effort or decision first, and collaborate before we compete. Secondly, and here's my inner nerd coming out, it's time for more data in fraternity sorority life. You'll hear Dr. Klotz talk about the major question facing all of higher education. How are we preparing our students for the workforce and for the world? We have only small snippets of our story in Fraternity Sorority Life to help with this proving. With AFA's new Director of Research and Assessment and the Center for the Study of College Fraternity and all the grants it offers, we're beginning to run out of excuses for not having mountains of data to guide our decision making. At the 2015 annual meeting, I attended several sessions with Dr. Assessment himself, Dan Bureau, and he provided some very wise data gathering methods. Looking beyond our normal surveying and our typical quantitative data on grades, service hours, incident reports, you know, all those numbers we get, we can gather so much additional data using the common conversations we're all having with community leaders and members. I highly recommend the book Dr. Phillips Bingham, Bureau, and Garrison Duncan put together on assessment, leading assessment for student success, as a must-read to start the year. It's short, but jam-packed with unignorable arguments for assessment, as well as some less talked about ways to gather data. Oh, and don't forget, you can have mountains of data, but you need to use it to inform your work. So don't just be a data hoarder, be a data user. Lastly, it's time for us to simplify our work in fraternity sorority life. I've been watching a lot of those pop business shows on CNBC. You know, Shark Tank, The Profit, other things, Restaurant Startup. And one thing that st always stands out to me is the push for simplicity first. One of my biggest pushes for myself and the community that I advise is to pick three themes, I call them buckets with my students, that will guide the work for the year. If something fits in that bucket, you do it. If it doesn't, it waits. What this does is it forces you to justify the work you've been doing and the work that you want to do. I love this quote from Greg McCown, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And that's so true for us in our often whiplash-inducing work. This year, 
pick three primary areas to work in for, on you, for your community and focus on them. Make those widely known throughout the community. Heck, let them pick their own themes and pour your energy and resources into them. I'd love to hear any additional resolutions you believe we should make in FSL this year. Tweet at me, at Matt Deeg, or something. Now let's go make 2016 an amazing year for fraternity. And now our guest for the day. Dr. Anne-Marie Plotz currently serves as the Dean for Campus Life at New York Institute of Technology. She's a believer in the transformative power of higher education. Her work and research focus on empowering others to create lives of meaning, purpose, and focus. I've been a fan of AMK and her innovative mind for some time now, following her thoughts and questions mostly through social media and the blogosphere. It's such a treat to have her on to chat about innovation and empowerment in higher ed and fraternity sorority life. Hello, Anne-Marie. Welcome and thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So we just talked about this actually before I kind of hit record, um, but I'm always fascinated and love starting these with kind of the story of how people got to where they are. So, you know, help me understand and, and our listeners kind of your journey into the field of, of higher education and kind of your trip all the way out to New York. Sure. Uh, so I'd like to start my story by saying one simple sentence. I'm not supposed to be here. Um, growing up in Detroit and being surrounded in the community that I grew up in, uh, college was sort of a pipe dream for many. Um, when I was 15 years old, I was sitting in my high school counselor's office and she asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And at 15, that's a, a large question, I think, for anyone to answer. But I paused for a moment, thought about it, and told her that I wanted to be a waitress at a really fancy restaurant. And she looked at me and said, okay, well, share with me why. And I said, well, I think I'm pretty good with people, so I think I'd be a good, a good waitress. Um, and if I was at a fancy restaurant, then I would make more money. Now, at 15, this makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, she looked at me, her eyes kind of got big. She put her hand on my knee and she said, you know, I think we can do better. And that weekend she did something which is probably illegal, so I won't say her name, but she picked me up at my apartment in Detroit and said, let's go to lunch and drove me three hours across the state to Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I had never been out of Detroit, let alone so far away. Um, her brother was a professor there and she thought that it would be a great school for me to consider. So I walked around the campus, obviously having no context of what it was, and I said, sure, sign me up. Now, she told me it was a little bit more complicated than that. I actually had to apply. Uh, but the general gist is that, um, you know, I believe people have been placed in my life at different points to help push and pull me um, through my career. And she was probably the first uh, person like that. Um, like many of you, my story is really similar. You know, student leader got involved right away. Um, but I think the story that, that illustrates best why I'm in this field is I was a freshman, I was involved with student government, um, had just joined a sorority, um, was doing some, some activist type things, and a woman called me and said she, uh, she was the assistant director of housing in the department, and she wanted to build a women's center at Grand Valley's campus because there wasn't one. Wow. And she said that she wanted to have one on campus by the time that I graduated, I was a freshman. I didn't know anything she was talking about. <laughs> I mean, at 19, the words and the concepts she was using was pretty foreign to me, but I simply smiled and said, sure. And so for the next few years, uh, Dr. Marlene Kowalski-Braun and I um, went around the, the, the university and around the country looking at um, different models, different women's centers, doing the research, figuring out how much furniture costs, you know, uh, putting together a proposal for the director. Um, 
And at the start of my first senior year, yes, I was on the five-year plan, uh, that Women's Center opened. I was the first student worker. It was me, an administrative assistant, and Marlene, who was named the new director. Uh, we occupied a small corner of the Dean of Students office. It was a closet, to be honest. And we learned from scratch how you build a Women's Center. Today, the space that is the Women's Center is now about 12 times the size of that initial closet, wow. has a very large staff, is, is one of the strongest women's centers in the country. Um, I go back often uh, you know, to speak at their events, to support their events. I'm a donor for that Women's Center. But what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is I learned about politics, uh, uh, job searches, uh, budget management, anything that you can imagine came from that experience that I had between 18 and 22, learning how you can develop a resource on a college campus. And so I can say without a doubt that that is what um, set my path to work in higher ed. Awesome. And it sounds like, you know, you weren't sure what all the thing would entail, but the note that I took said, you know, you just said, sure, you were looking and open to that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, Matt, I have many flaws, and one of them that could be a flaw or a, a great strength is um, I don't pause. So when the question is asked, my gut tells me right away if it's a yes or a no. And 98% of the time, it's awesome. And 2% of the time, I'm screwed. Uh, and so those odds are good enough for me to not question <laughs> and to roll with it. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. And so from Grand Valley State, you then went on, did master's. Um, your track kind of took you through housing, yes? Absolutely, so um, I was an RA for four years while at Grand Valley, um, and then I did a placement exchange and knew I was looking for a job in housing, quite honestly, because I you know, didn't know how to pay the bills, which is like very reminiscent of the students we deal with. Um, but I also really liked housing, right? I had done that for a long time. The thing that's odd about my journey was that I knew I couldn't accept a graduate assistantship um, I had responsibilities financially with my family that I knew that a graduate assistantship stipend was not going to cover it. And so like many first gen uh, kids, I made the decision that was in the short term great and the long term a challenge, which is um, I was offered full time employment at Albion College, which is a small private liberal arts school in the middle of Michigan, while going um, up north about 30 minutes to Michigan State full time for my, my graduate work. And so it was perfect in the sense that I made the absolutely enormous sum of $24,000 plus, uh, you know, housing. I thought I was the richest girl on the planet. Um, but of course, I mean, I had to pay those loans out, you know, on the back end many years later. Um, but for me, it made the absolute best sense because I couldn't justify, you know, bringing home 500 a month when my car payment was 300 a month kind of thing. Um, so it did that was there for two years as a hall director, got promoted my second year to also be the assistant director of the women's center. So I held those roles concurrently. Um, Graduated from Michigan State, left Albion, went to Ball State University, where I again worked in housing with the Honors College there, taught a couple classes in the Honors College while running an Honors Hall, was there for about three years. And then my buddy Edwin Darrell from Grand Valley said, hey, I just took an assistant director position at DePaul University in Chicago. We've interviewed 14 people. They are all a hot mess. Will you come work here? <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm pretty happy at Ball State. I've got a great job here. Um, but, you know, again, split second decision okay so i submitted my resume on a wednesday they called me thursday they flew me out friday and um they offered me the job monday 
And for the next six years, I worked as the assistant director for selection and training uh, at DePaul. Uh, got a second master's in women and gender studies. Again, you know, continuing that commitment to that academic area uh, and also got my doctorate from there. Um, and as I was finishing classes at DePaul, I knew I was looking for the next opportunity. I knew I could write from anywhere. And uh, I did a, a national search um, that brought me out of the Midwest for the first time in my then 33 years of, of uh, being on the planet. And so I ended up going all the way west to Oregon State University where I was their director for residential education. Um, I knew that I wanted a large department with a large budget, large staff, just to kind of get that experience. Um, and it was fantastic. And so while I was out there, I finished writing, got my doctorate, um, was just kind of settling in uh, right around the two year mark when uh, a mentor forwarded me the job description here at NYIT with one word, which said, go. <laughs> and I um, applied and after a very long process was uh, selected as the candidate and I've been here just a little under two years now. Fantastic. Well, one of the things that you know I've enjoyed watching with you at NYIT is just your ability to encourage and empower others to innovate, right? In the in the bio I read about you, you know, your focus is about empowering others and um, you've created this environment of innovation. I, I watch you and Danny Catalano and you're posting, you know, hashtag NYIT did that all the time. And uh, how do you do that? How do you create that environment of innovation within your division? Sure. Well, there's a couple of things. The, the, the reason why I applied was because there was a small paragraph on the website at NYIT that said, we are looking for dynamic change makers. We're not looking for status quo. And so if you hire me, it's not because you want the status quo. Uh, and my boss, Dr. Patrick Love, is also uh, cut from a similar cloth. And so, um, you know, when he hired me, he said, you have one job, and that is to do very big things. And you don't have to ask permission, you just do them, and I'm going to support you. And so we are a really good team in that way, um, because we, we want to be the institution that creates the industry standards. Yeah. Um, and that was prevalent from day one. And so uh, we have six core values in student affairs here. A primary one is innovation. We have innovation hours every week where staff are working on just brainstorming new and innovative ideas. Um, the, the innovation pieces are parts of our monthly reports that we have to report on. We also do innovation grants up to $5,000 for new and innovative ideas in student affairs. And so it is a part of the work we do here. We're constantly looking at what's different, what's new, what can we host at NYIT? So we really want to be uh, New York City's center for professional development in higher education. And, you know, I'm probably biased, but I think we're already there. We've hosted a variety of uh, conferences and workshops and institutes in just the short, you know, almost two years that I've been here uh, to position this university as a major player in student affairs. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, one of the things that I've been reading and researching this month, I'm focusing on like organizational citizenship and how people do more to further their institution. And, and one of the big things is knowing what the core values are and really embracing them. And it sounds like, yeah. you know, you guys have made innovation that core value and you're certainly embracing it and, and throwing all of really your money where your mouth is saying, this is what we're going to push. Yeah, I mean, the, the money reflects where the priorities are. So we knew we had to realign money instantly to be able to make that happen. I mean, the, the really most important thing I have to say here is that our staff uh, took a leap of faith on us. They didn't know Patrick and I, we did not come from this culture. Uh, the people at NYIT are fantastic. They're some of the best I've ever worked with, but many have worked here a long time. And sometimes people get the unfair stereotype that if they've been here or been somewhere for a very long time, that they can't possibly be innovative. And that's simply not true. 
And we said, if you trust us, you know, we will be able to transform this division in powerful ways. And that's really to their credit that, that everyone has stepped up their game. And so one of the things that I did when I came here is I said, how you are being evaluated is now being shifted. So you are being evaluated on four core pieces, your contribution to the department, to the division, to the university, and to the field. And if you are doing the job within your department excellently, then you are only doing 25% of what you're being asked to do. And so it was a complete reframe from these folks as really good people at NYIT, really you know, great with students, to you are now someone who's gonna have subject matter expertise and a leader in our field writing, you know, presenting, publishing, um, doing all kinds of leadership opportunities was new for a lot of the folks here in the division. And uh, when they submit their goals every semester, they have to do them in those four areas. And then we we check them at the semester mark. So next month, next week at our retreat, um, I'll be able to showcase here all the goals that are in the green and the red and the yellow. Uh, and that's how they're being evaluated. If you are not contributing to the university or to the field, then you're failing at your job. And that was a complete reframe and one that I'm really happy that people seem to uh, not only tolerate, <laughs> but enjoy. Well, and that, you know, that's a really cool kind of expectation, too, because it helps them think beyond just themselves and the work that they're doing. And so if they're contributing to the field, they're looking beyond just what we've always done into how can what we're doing impact the work around us. Yes. So. And my job is to increase the value of the NYIT student's degree. And so everything from nearly all of my wardrobe is blue now, right, and NYIT <laughs> blue, to my walls being painted blue, to, you know, when I first came here, nobody wore an NYIT t-shirt. And in the last two years, we've given out uh, probably 20,000 pieces of swag um, just to encourage folks to wear. And now everybody knows, well, it's Blue Thursday. People get teased if they don't wear blue on Thursday. <laughs> we've been able to create a culture on a largely commuter campus that people said couldn't happen. And so um, I serve on my alumni board now back at Grand Valley um, was one of my ways to try to give back. So I fly back to Michigan four times a year. And I was speaking recently with um, our president at Grand Valley. And he said, you know, his number one job is to make sure that the degree never decreases even one dollar in value. And because NYIT is a smaller regional campus, um, you know, my job is to make sure that I'm increasing that value every day. So uh, people may get sick of my posts on social media or, you know, seeing me in yet another blue dress. <laughs> but it all comes down to one main goal, which is to make sure that, that these students get every dollar they deserve. Because when people say, oh, I went to NYIT, they know instantly where that is and what it is. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I think for people from the outside kind of watching what's happening at NYIT, some of them, you know, me, I'm, I'm watching going, boy, I wish that I could have an environment like that or help create an environment like that. What would you say to people that are looking, saying, we want to have this a similar innovative kind of department or environment at our campus? Sure. Well, I think one thing that I often hear is that um, they can't do it because, you know, their boss doesn't support it or their the boss's boss doesn't. And to that, I would say, what is your locus of control? So even if you are a, a hall director, your locus of control is your building, your staff, your community, your RAs. And so um, start there, start small. 
Now, I was very lucky in the sense that my boss, Patrick, had just started a few months before me and knew exactly what he wanted. And my charge was really clear. So from a leadership level, we were both the decision makers, the new people coming in and the ones setting the agenda. But for anyone else, I would say start with your own locus of control. Um, so when I was a hall director back at Ball State, myself and my grad, now my dear friend Todd Porter, you know, we set the stage for what we wanted that community to be like, how we wanted to create the norms of that community, what innovative things we wanted to do while still being mindful, of course, of the overall goal of the department and the division, but start small. And when you are and become a decision maker, then you get to make those decisions. These, these six core values I'm talking about, there was none of this before we got here. And so it's a beautiful thing to now be in a place where we can create them and to implement them, but you can start wherever you're at. Yeah. And it's probably, it's actually easier to learn when you're, you know, have a much smaller locus of control, right? If you yeah. hadn't practice doing some of these things earlier in your career and then you started doing them now you'd be like uh oh I don't know if this is going to work but you've had that practice to to make it happen yes and I would say too um knock on wood I am very lucky in that nearly every supervisor I've ever had in my career is not just good they were exceptional they were exceptional supervisors and mentors to me and they were a little bit rogue and I think that fits me just fine. And so their rogueness gave me professional permission to um, not be bound by certain like preconceived notions about what you should or shouldn't do. Um, that combined with mentors and sponsors, you know, I, I've just um, I've never really felt like I had to be confined by those limits. And again, most of the times that suited me just fine, and two percent of the time, not so much. Um, but it, it's given me the, the power and to be empowered to say that we're not going to be status quo people. Yeah, that's awesome. One of the things um, most influential, it's actually saved under uh, one of my bookmarks. I go back and read it every so often. You wrote a, a blog post called The Next 30 Years of Student Affairs or of essay. Yeah. Um, why should we care about the future of higher education and student affairs? I, I feel like that's a pretty, people should be able to answer that, but uh, you know, a lot of times we don't think that far ahead. Why should we be concerned about the future? Sure, two reasons. Number one, college is always being asked, particularly in this day and age, um, about its credibility. You know, are, are universities still being run in a way where there's a strong return on investment? And so I think that's an important question that we all have to ask ourselves about our processes. The second piece is that the new people that we are bringing in right now into our grad programs are our future vice presidents of student affairs, if yeah. that position even exists then. And so we have to be mindful that uh, we need to be doing a really great job with recruiting and onboarding and training these folks. Um, you know what? You know that statistic about how many people leave the field after five or ten years. Yeah. I wish them well, but I am glad that they found another field that works better for them because we need to find people who are very committed to wanting to do this work uh, and who know that it's going to be really freaking hard. And if you are not exhausted every day for the first ten years of, of your job. I don't want to say you're not doing it right, but it should be hard, but it's also not brain surgery. You know, I think sometimes we have like this martyr syndrome, like, you know, we are so exhausted and so worn out. We work in higher ed. You know, I see every day the NYPD, the FDNY, our firefighters, police, social services. Uh, I'm not trying to compare. Uh, certainly, they're very, very different. But also, we need to put it in perspective. We are yeah. blessed to do this work we do. We're given very generous um, vacation and sick time and things like that that a lot of our corporate friends do not get. 
And so I think sometimes we just have to have put it in perspective that sometimes it's less about, you know, the job or the university and more about sort of how we choose to react to it and what we choose to do within the role. Yeah, I think um, it was either you or one of our colleagues, Julie Payne Kirchmeyer, did she post this morning on Facebook about people complaining about going back to work, but actually, hey, it's 2016, it's a new year, we get to continue making a difference in people's lives. Did you saw that too, yes? I feel like that's been a theme uh, today, and I think it's an absolutely accurate one. And to that I would say, you know, um, if people are not happy in their jobs, leave. Yeah. And I know that it's not that simple all the time, and there are other competing factors, but we have such a limited time on earth and so many hours that we work, right? And so I can tell you that I, certainly there's been some hard days, but in the 20 months I've been at NYIT, I've not had a bad day at work. Now, I'm sure it's coming, but what I'm saying is there should be many more of those good days than bad. And if it's not, then it's time to reevaluate. Yeah, for sure. And thinking about kind of that future, right? So, you know, a lot of the folks that listen to this are still kind of young professionals finding their way in the field. Um, you know, how can we prepare for the future ahead? What, what would you say? So three things that I would say is we need to sunset old programs that no longer serve our student body. And so um, recognize that you might have gone to college in 2002, uh, but these students did not. So the things that we really like to do could be vastly different. Oftentimes the programs that take up the most time, effort, and money are things that the staff love and the, that the students don't love. And so we really need to be mindful that um, students have to have a part in that and they have to really like what we're doing. Otherwise, it's just wasting time and effort. Um, I think we need to recruit and hire the very best people. And of course, that seems probably very basic, but something that we do very poorly in higher ed is our job searches. We don't treat candidates well, we are inconsistent, we are poor with communication, we don't do what we say we're going to do, um, and that makes the very best people not want to work for and with us. Right. And so recruiting and hiring the very best people. Um, I think we also need to be aware that uh, the qualifications for jobs, uh, we need to sort of be able to look beyond that, whether it's looking at people who maybe don't have higher ed degrees or looking at people who might seem to have less experience. You know, I mentioned when my my sponsor forwarded me that email saying, you know, go apply for NYIT. Actually, it just said go, just one word. <laughs> um, but I called my, my, my now boss, Patrick Love, who I didn't know well. I just sort of knew him through student affairs circles. We just talked for 15, 20 minutes and he said, yeah, you know, I encourage you to apply if you're interested. So I apply. Uh, over 300 applications come in, the search committee screens, and they pick 25 people to Skype interview. And I'm not one of the 25. And so Patrick comes in and looks at the list, and he was like, oh, what did you think about, about Anne-Marie? And they're like, oh, she seems nice, but, you know, she's not ready. You know, she's too young. She's inexperienced. Yeah. She doesn't have all the check boxes, even though I fit all of the requirements, right? right. My doctorate, 10 years experience, postmasters, all of this. Um, and Patrick said, you know, um, here, phone interviewer, if she sucks, you've only lost 30 minutes of your life, right? <laughs> and I'm sure the search committee did not like that, um, but they did. And obviously, you know how it's, sh it's shaken out. Right. But all that to mean that um, sometimes we get so stuck and so fixated on the idea of what the person needs to look like and what, what the skills are they need to have. Listen, if I'm hiring an associate director, I'll hire a 25-year-old if I think that they are phenomenal over a 40-year-old who just has gone through all the motions, but maybe I don't see that same spark of innovation or talent. Right. And so, you know, one of my mentors always talks about um, time in the chair doesn't equal talent. And I think that's so true. And so people have always been willing to take a risk on me. Um, the fact that I'm, you know, 36 and in this role, um, 
is testament to that. And so I have to also uh, pay it forward. And if I see people who I think can do this job, I do my best to put aside any bias about, oh, are they ready? Nobody's ready. Nobody's ever ready to get married, to have a baby, to have a promotion. <laughs> You just roll with it. And if you think the person can do it by talking thoughtfully to the references and knowing that past performance is the best indicator of future success, then we must be willing uh, to hire the very best people. Um, so those are just a couple of things I think we need to be mindful of when we're talking about the future. Awesome. And that's, you know, those are some pretty large scale themes. Um, you know, we just hit the start of a new year um, and folks are making their New Year's resolutions and things. And I'm wondering, you know, for just the specific immediate year, 2016, what are two, three, a couple resolutions you, you hope all of us in student affairs can make to further the profession, to better work with students, to help empower our students, to, to impact the world more? Sure. So I think um, something that I feel even more strongly working at an urban, largely first generation school is that while things like leadership and identity development are all really important things, the number one thing that I am here to do is to give students the tools they need to secure employment post-graduation. And that is the thing that we should be all focused on. And we all provide those tools in very different ways. You know, student activities does that differently than orientation, does that differently than housing. Um, but that's the critical piece. And there, there's nothing that hurts my heart. It's like nails on a chalkboard. When I'm at graduation and I'm talking to seniors and I'm like, what's next? And they're like, I'm gonna start applying for jobs now. No. No, that is not the answer. Right. <laughs> That's the answer that I want to hear, right? And so um, for many of our students, there is no safety net. And so that's what we have to really focus on when thinking about what are the skills and talents that they need. Some of our students don't know how to tie a tie. They don't know how to write a check. Uh, I have to teach students all the time how to get on a plane, how to manage a layover. And so what are those skills that we can give students to be successful? Because many times they're coming from families that do not have that ability either. And so we have to be mindful that when we say the skills, it's many more things than just how does your resume look? Um, so that would be one. In terms of um, resolutions as it pertains to Greek life, I would say that you're only as strong as your most struggling chapter. Yeah. And tomorrow that struggling chapter could be you. And so sometimes we all know on our campuses, we'll all have those couple of dominant chapters um, who sort of you know run the show. And while that's fun for the members in there, you know we have to be mindful of all the chapters. So uh, I came from a strong chapter at Grand Valley. I'm an AOPI, and part of what we did is we often helped other chapters learn how to recruit, both on the fraternity side and the sorority side. Um, so we understood the power of the Greek community. Um, I served in Panhellenic for many years as the VP of recruitment. And so, you know, our goal was to um, get people to understand the value of Greek life. Um, the third thing I would say is that each year that you're in a position, you should be assuming progressively responsible duties. And so what your job duties look like in year one should be vastly different than in year three or four. And if you're asking the question, you know, what can be taken off my plate, you're asking the wrong question. And if someone asked me that question, I will not hire or promote them. And so what you need to be saying is, how can I be doing my work differently, smarter, you know, and take on more pieces? I mean, your job, especially as you move up through the ranks, is single. It is to make your boss look good so that you can get all the access to resources for your students that you need. And so um, figuring out the way, the best way to do that is really important. And the last thing I would say, particularly in this year, in 2016, is that voter education is really important for our yeah, students. For sure. um, I was lucky enough to be at DePaul University um, when Barack Obama was first elected and to see some of our um, African-American students 
cast their vote for the first time for a president that looked like them was extremely empowering. Um, but beyond that, our students need to understand the power of voting, to understand that for many of our students, they did not always hold that right. Um, and just to provide information on all of the issues across the aisle. Um, you know, in my class that I teach, um, I have our students watch the debates. Um, and really critique them and think about it from every uh, person's standpoint. And so this is their first time doing this. We can create lifelong voters right. uh, if we if we choose to. And so those would be some things that I would hope for our field and our community at large. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, when I talk with students about the difference that fraternity and sorority can make in creating, you know, positive employees, you know, parents, spouses, uh, educated citizens. It sounds like everything you're talking about as a resolution is what I talk with my students about, right? We can, you know, impact the world around us, but we have to teach them how to do this. And yes. and I, I love that uh, kind of message going into the new year. Uh, one of the things that I've also enjoyed watching, um, you know, so I am a I'm a guy, um, uh, but I, I always enjoy. Um, kind of being challenged and, and seeing a different perspective on things. And so watching the Women in Student Affairs Knowledge Community and some of the tweets and posts that come out of that certainly educate and challenge um, me and, and some of the privilege that I have. And um, how can women continue to lead and inspire others in the student affairs world? Obviously, you're one of the ones that's doing that. Um, you know, I, I have some friends who very much look up to you and, and speak very highly of you. And they're like, oh, my gosh, if I could just be like her. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to aim higher. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think you've, you've been able to do that and model some of those things. So how can, how can women in the student affairs world continue to inspire and, and model that? Sure. So a couple things I would say. So, uh, gosh, maybe 10 years ago, uh, Julie Payne Kirchmeyer and I were eating tacos in Chicago and we're like, we should run for the WISA chairs someday, the national chairs. Um, we had both served sort of in a regional capacity before. Um, and we decided that if and when we ever got that position, we were going to do some very big things with it. And so when we were lucky enough to be elected, um, we formed a social media team. We created the Women in Student Affairs blog, um, which has the highest uh, viewership of nearly any blog within NASPA every week, you know, giving a different person an opportunity to share their story, which we know is read by both men and women alike. Like, um, about their experiences. Um, I recently read a book that the dedication said to the women on whose shoulders we stand. And I think about that all the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm here because there are people who have thrown doors open for me, you know, people like Julie, like Deb Schmidt Rogers, Terry Bump, Sissy Petty. I mean, there are so many women, Connie Smith, my first supervisor at Albion, who said, you're working here full time, but you need a master's degree. The, the, the deadline for the program is today. Take the day off and drive up your application to East Lansing, Michigan, which I did. Um, so, I mean, I have been very lucky to be surrounded by great women who have, uh, I've stood on their shoulders. They've opened the door and that's part of my role. I've also had amazingly supportive men um, who have um, given me opportunities. You know, um, the great Norm Dunkel asked me one time what one of my dreams was. And I said, at one point, I would love to be able to write for publication. And this is when I was like a baby. And, you know, years later, when an opportunity came up, he said, hey, I need someone to write uh, this book chapter on human resources. Now, I knew nothing about human resources at that time, but I was going to show up for Norb, so I figured it out, right? right? And so there have been so many great men and women who've helped me throughout my career. So what I would say, 
for both men and women is that to recognize their role as a, a sponsor. Uh, you know, sponsorship is about um, choosing people who you think do amazing work and trying to remove obstacles from their path. Um, it's about opening that door. So, you know, I always think about that door metaphor where I say uh, a mentor will sit with you and talk with you about the pros and cons of opening the door, right? Should you open it? Should you not? A coach will say, okay, put your hand on the door, squeeze, turn a little to the left, push it. They're, they're giving you skills, right? right. But uh, a sponsor really throws open that door for you because they're putting their name on you. Uh, and your job is to respect that, to make sure you don't embarrass them and to do the very best job that you can. Um, and so I think that men and women can be great sponsors um, to young men and women coming up in the field. Um, my research uh, through my doctorate is on uh, female college presidents and the ways in which they assumed that path. And all of them talked about the fact that it was mostly men who supported them because there weren't women in leadership roles at, the, at those points, or very few actually. And so it was men who said their name when they weren't in the room, men who nominated them. Um, within my own friend group now, there's about six of us who are all at the same professional level all around the country, deans and AVPs from California to Illinois to Florida. And um, we nominate each other for everything, sponsor each other in the ways that we can, suggest each other for writing, for speaking opportunities. And it's a non-competitive climate because we all know and recognize the gifts and talents that each of us bring. And I hope that for everybody listening, that they are able to um, find that same group of colleagues that I have found, because it is a really empowering thing to have um, people at your same level vouch for and support you. Um, so those would be a couple things that I would say as it relates to supporting our younger men and women. Yeah, it sounds, I love the idea of, you know, letting other people stand on your shoulders. And, and really the theme is don't be afraid to let someone kind of stand on your shoulders. Um, yes. And so a, me a mentor, a sponsor once said to me, uh, my dream is for you to surpass me. And I think about that statement so much because um, what a selfless, beautiful statement. My dream is for you to surpass me. And so I think about that all the time with the young folks that I work with. So when you say those very kind words about, you know, what people shared with you, I hope they aim higher. I hope they surpass. I hope that they don't make the mistakes that I've made. And I hope that they have, you know, will enjoy the journey. But we should all aspire for the great people that we work with to surpass us. And we can only do that by supporting and encouraging them. Yeah, for sure. And we do, I mean, we do it so readily with students, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we're trying to help help them find the greatness inside of them and, and help them to stand up and, and do what's best for them, even if it's not in our field. Yes, but I think a lot absolutely. of times the competitiveness in our field and our wanting to maybe beat somebody else out or whatever keeps us from letting others stand on our shoulders. And so really being givers rather than takers in the field. Yes, there's room in the sandbox for everybody, yeah. you know, and so I think that's really important to remember is that um, there's not a limited amount of opportunities. There's a million and where there isn't an opportunity, you create one. So I wanted to do some speaking and consulting years back and I didn't see anybody uh, at age 30 who was female who was doing that. So I did it on a small scale level. I, you know, with my friend Matt Bloomingdale created a website. Um, and now I've been able to grow that, you know, six years later into something that I really, really enjoy. But I, I didn't see anybody doing that. So I created my own market. Um, and you can do that, too. And so it's just about finding that area of passion and subject matter expertise and building an opportunity where there was none. Yeah. Awesome. Now, 
this is the Fraternity Sorority Life podcast, and you know we've briefly alluded to it, but haven't really talked about it um, that much. Uh, one of the first things I'm really interested in is, you know, a lot of us in Fraternity Sorority Life think about it at like the big state schools, uh, you know, very much a residential campus kind of a thing. Uh, but we don't talk a lot about Fraternity Sorority Life at an urban institution um, where a lot of the students are commuters. Talk to me about kind of the importance of Fraternity Sorority Life at NYIT or at an urban institution. Sure. Um, I love Greek life. I loved, have loved it at nearly every institution that I've been at, but there is something special about it here at an urban institution. Um, first of all, you know, uh, what do they say? Necessity is indeed the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are in the middle of New York City, right by Columbus Circle, not too far from Times Square, across the street from Central Park. Wow. Space is at a premium. And so everything from, you know, where you hold your ritual to where you have your recruitment events. And so we have to be really creative. Um, the thing that I noticed right away about this institution is that because many of our students are first gen, because many, many, many of our students are international, veterans, uh, more non-traditional, uh, it looks different. Yeah. So when I look at our Ta Kappa Epsilon chapter, and I think about Teak nationally, it, it looks very different. Mm -hmm. So uh, nearly 90% of our Teak members are men of color here. And so to me, that looks very different than what I think about in a, in a traditional Teak yeah. chapter. It's also wonderful. Um, and, but what it makes me do is it makes me take every preconceived notion that I've had about Greek life and throw it out the window. Because some of these students did take a couple of years off to work before coming back to school. Their presidents could be 25. Um, and so that's also just different to think about in terms of, uh, you know, where they are in sort of the development of things. Right. They can also do higher functioning things because they're 25, not 20. Yeah. And so there's real opportunity there as well. Um, what I will say is I think that uh, many of these folks, I mean, there's no such thing really as legacies here at these urban institutions, because for many of them, th their parents have never even been to college, let alone had the opportunity to participate in fraternity and sorority life. So we're teaching them the basics. And for all of our international students, when we say go Greek, they're like, yeah, I've been to Greece. And so we really have to be mindful about how we explain the whole experience because students don't have the context for it. And so um, we talk about this, about being an opportunity for community and for leadership and to build friends uh, above all else. And so we have kind of had to look at recruitment, I think, a little bit differently. Also, some of our chapters are small, and so there's citywide chapters, right. um, you know, with that, within New York City. And so we like NYIT to kind of be like the host for those opportunities um, so we can have chapters, you know, come and visit us and see us. But uh, it is very different. It is a stronger brotherhood and sisterhood than I've ever had the opportunity to witness. Um, and it's really a beautiful thing. That's fantastic. And as the, you know, Dean, do you have concerns about fraternities and sororities? I mean, obviously you do, but what are some of the ones that maybe hopefully they don't keep you awake at night, but you're like, oh, I hope that this doesn't happen here. Sure. I mean, I think our our situations are different. So while we don't have fraternity and sorority houses per se, mm -hmm. we host very large events, welcome back parties, uh, boat cruises. We use a lot of outside events in the city of New York, right? So things can happen all the time, especially as it relates to alcohol, drugs, um, a sexual assault. So probably the same things that occupy any other dean's mind are probably similar to mine. Um, what I do feel very good about is that those students have my cell phone number. And I feel like they would not hesitate to reach out. 
And I have spoken at nearly every Greek event so that they know that I'm an ally and that they won't be afraid to call me or a member of my staff if they're in a really challenging situation. Um, but certainly, I mean, you, you see what's happening nationally. Uh, you know, I often get asked on panels, uh, should we do away with Greek life? And I think the answer is no, but I do think that there has to be more restrictions and control on it, particularly at larger residential campuses, because the numbers don't lie. Like we're just now we're starting to see, you know, higher numbers of reported incidents than maybe in previous years. Um, but the community sets the expectations for what they will accept and what they will not. Mm -hmm. And so we really try to teach uh, a strong uh, message of community empowerment. Um, so that sometimes I don't even have to call out the acts that are happening because the students are, are self-monitoring and self-governing that. And to me, that's like a beautiful thing to see that um, I don't have to talk to them about the fact that, you know, they left the student union a mess or they did something inappropriate at an event because they're already on it. Um, and that's what I think our, our goal is. We know students are going to make mistakes. I mean, I certainly <laughs> made mistakes as well. Uh, but if they can get to a space where the community is helping to talk about those things, then I think that we can't ask for much more than that. And I, I know that uh, being in a sorority helps me to develop everything from how I run meetings to how I interact with people to how I have the ability to network. You know, I came to college with one dress, which now seems crazy, um, but I wore 56 dresses of all the girls in my chapters. And I learned how to uh, behave in certain spaces because I learned about the, just the different formal spaces and ritual and things like that, that helped to make me more successful when I was in uncomfortable spaces. I mean, I'm often in uncomfortable spaces, either I'm the only woman or I'm the youngest person in the room or whatever the case might be. And sorority life taught me to own my space, to own my power, to own my voice and to not be afraid to use it. That's fantastic. That's like a recruitment poster worthy quote right there. <laughs> um, well, I appreciate your, your time. One of the things I love kind of closing these with is getting a little bit more insight into the person outside of work. Um, you saw, I, I call them the frequently asked questions, stole that from the Freakonomics podcast, which is one of my favorites. Um, you know, you've probably seen on my social media that I love to read. Um, you know, this year I'm switching to journal articles, but still a few books in there. Um, what's something you've read in the past year? I can't say this year because that's like three days. Uh, right. But what's something you've read in the past year that you think everybody should read? Yeah, so um, I used to love to read and I still like it, but I will say life post-doctorate can be a little rough uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, <laughs> reading a full book. However, what I did recently um, read that was a gift for me is a wonderful coffee book called Notorious RBG, which okay. is all about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. And the subtitle on the back says, uh, Biography of a Badass, which is also what I hope my biography will be called someday. <laughs> um, but why I like this, uh, her life story so much is that um, she's an unlikely hero uh, when you read her story. And she was pretty much shut down at every possible venture. You know, she would be fired because she was a young mom or she, could, you know, she couldn't take time away because she had a family. Um, and she just kept plowing along. And she has a way of staying you know, true to who she is that's made her be successful throughout her life uh, long before her time. I mean, talk about being the only in the room. I mean, this is this was her, her story all the time. So uh, it's a great book. It's a quick read. It's filled with pictures and witty RBG-isms. So <laughs> I would highly suggest you pick it up. 
Fantastic. The book you held up looked like it was 500 pages long, though. It looked well, pretty it's, fast. Like a it's a coffee book, though. Oh, okay. So it's like um, short stories and pictures and cartoons. So Fun. not that heavy. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And then when you're not in your office and not working in higher ed, I know you're a runner. Um, but what are the things that you enjoy doing beyond just your work? Sure. Well, something that I want to share just briefly, because we are talking about social media and things like that earlier, yeah. is... Um, I definitely have a method to how I share my life on social media. When I look around, I don't see a lot of um, single, child-free women um, who post about their life. And so for me, it's really important and intentional for me to share about the things that I'm doing in my community or the things that I do outside of work, because I think it's important to show that there's a variety of different paths that women can choose to, to lead. Um, you know, I've known seven very young that this is the path that I was going to lead. And so um, in thinking about, you know, the things I like to do outside of work, I just wanted to share that it's important for me to share all of that because sometimes there are these boxes that people put women in. You know, either you're um, the, the mom with the happy family or you're that, that poor woman. You know, and I sort of refuse to be uh, in that second box. And so I have created my own box. So that being said, yes, I am a runner. Um, I ran about 1,300 miles in this last year, um, and I really love it. Uh, I have a great running community here in New York. Uh, to balance that out, I eat everything. Um, I've tried, I think, you know, a good, ooh, maybe I'll say 5% of the restaurants here in New York City because there's so many. Uh, I also am a big Broadway aficionado, so I saw over 40 Broadway shows in 2015. Um, and so I do my best to to live a pretty vibrant, fun life. Awesome. And I think the the question I'll I'll close out with, you mentioned that you're you're a member of AOPI. Um, yeah. What is your fondest sorority memory? Gosh, so many. You know, I think, I think what I will say, well, two things really quick. The first thing is that um, things don't change. And so on a daily basis, I have sorority sisters texting, posting on Facebook, saying, hey, I'm going to be in New York City next week. Do you want to grab lunch? So all the things that they tell you when you go through recruitment about friends for a lifetime, like, yes, of course, that changes and evolves and people have their own lives. But I, I can say, you know, my good uh, friend, sorority sister, um, Nadia Skidmore, she's coming to New York uh, next week to come here to see Hamilton. And so we already have plans for dinner. Um, and this is a woman who at 18, we were in pigtails rocking the AOPI red jacket around campus, you know? Know? And so I think it's a really beautiful thing to sort of see um, that that sisterhood can be kept for a lifetime, nearly 18 years, you know, after we began that journey. Um, I would say probably my fondest memory is um, when we would do our, our preference ceremonies um, before we gave out bids. Um, everyone in AOPI wears red and we stand in the circle and we're sharing a little bit about our sisterhood. And I just remember looking around at the 60 or so women in the chapter and knowing that despite how different all of us were, uh, every person in that room had my back. And, uh, you know, when my car got hit by a deer, uh, it, it was it was Grand Rapids, Michigan, right. um, or, you know, something went down that these were always the people who um, were going to have your back. And um, it's the first time I think that I felt like uh, home wasn't just back in Detroit. I, I now had a new home. And it's a beautiful thing to um, to start college, to be far away from home, but to know that you are still home. And that feeling of home um, existed for me during my entire collegiate experience with AOPI. Awesome. Very cool. Well, 
Uh, Dr. Klotz, I want to thank you so much just for coming on and, and sharing some really good words of wisdom and insight with us. I hope that they're good challenges for all the listeners and just really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, hope you have a great year and new semester. Yes, you too. Thank you. Take care. You too. So that's our episode for this week. If you have comments or questions, hit me up on Twitter, at Matt Deeg, or comment in iTunes or on the blog. Until next time, stay curious.